Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And people want to know, how do you get verdicts like that? One, you got to believe in your case. And if you truly believe in your case, you just ask. You ask for it. And you tell them why it should matter to them and why it matters to your client and why it ma- you show them why it matters to everybody. You don't tell them anything, you show them. Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing uh, this Wednesday afternoon? I'm good. How are how are you to be back in, in the United States of America doing a podcast with me? I'm I'm good. I'm good. I had a really, really great time with my family. It, I will say that uh, being 13 hours difference in time, yeah, it takes a toll on the body, especially when you're getting up there in years, which I never like to admit. But uh, <laughs> but but yes, it's uh, it, it's it it can have some uh, it it can it, it it takes a little bit of time to to readjust. But uh, but I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, I can't remember if we told people you were going to Japan. I can't remember yeah. if we said on an episode, but if we didn't, Steve went to Japan and now he's I, back. Yeah, I went to I went to Japan and I and I dropped my daughter off there and she's over there in a study abroad program. So she's still there. Um, so cool. Yeah, yeah. She's having a great time. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to say a little bit of news because uh our fearless producer, uh Raz Misher, uh, who we've talked about on the podcast before, is in law school. Well, we found out last week or this week, I think Raz, um, that uh that Raz got on the mock trial team. So uh he's gonna be kicking some butt on mock trial. So- yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll yeah, every everything I learned from you guys, I'll, I'll try to apply it. That's right. That's right. I, I'm I'm hoping that during your mock trial, you'll work in the Great Trials podcast somewhere. Just you know, give us a shout out. <laughs> okay, so I exciting! Will. Yeah, so exciting! So amazing that to all our past guests and all our listeners, somehow what we had to say didn't scare Raz off. Yeah, and that's right. He stuck with it. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) it's kind of cool that you know we've had we've done all these shows with all these great trial lawyers across the nation and and we and we're building a lawyer right in front of our eyes and and that's that's right yeah i know that's right yeah yeah hopefully i'll be a good one (laughs) and we i already know you will man i know you no doubt it'll be great no Um, doubt because you're hearing from so many excellent trial attorneys like our guest today yes that is right and and like you guys Yes. Oh well, right, thank, right. thank you, Rose. I'm I'm glad you you made sure to work that in. But uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, my my check is due, so you know right. I don't yeah, that's right. Nice. That's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, well, let's uh, before we, instead of wasting everybody's time, uh, let's let's get to our guest. We have a fantastic uh, lawyer. Uh, I want to just introduce him. He's uh, he he's the. Um, uh, well, I, you know, I didn't even ask you this, Gabe. Uh, you, you're, the name of your firm is the Trial Lab. I didn't. Are, do you call yourself a partner, or do you call yourself the uh, member? Or, anyways, you're you're in charge of the Trial Lab, I think. So, uh, so Gabe Houston is a fantastic trial lawyer. Uh, hey, Gabe, how are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, I'm just. A, it's a single member operation. It basically started out as a working group. From I'm, I'm a ranch guy, the Jerry Spence right. Ranch, and we do these little local working groups. And I started this trial lab that out of um sort of a local working group and then i converted my law firm into it so nice. you know I, I associate with other people and other people associate with me but it's just me 
Yeah. Well, and, and we should say, so Gabe uh, is, well, he was based in, in California. We just had a, a discussion about that still barred there in the case that we're going to be talking about to get today was tried in Orange County, uh, California, but is, uh, is, is now in Florida and basically uh, has a nationwide practice. Is that right, Gabe? That is right. And I'll be pursuing Texas before the year's over uh, admission without examination through Texas as well. So all right. Yeah. Cover All right. The southern cover, cover the southern part of the continental U.S. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, and just to give a little bit of background about Gabe, Gabe is a fantastic trial lawyer. He's he's tried a, a number of cases in all different areas, including medical malpractice, product liability, personal injury. Uh, as I said, he's a member of the Florida Bar, the California Bar, a graduate of UC Berkeley and then the Chapman University uh, School of Law. And um, and uh, just had a terrific result on a uh, on a, a case against Suzuki Motor Corp that we're going to talk about. So uh, so uh, glad to have you on the show, Gabe. Thanks for having me. And before I go on, I'd be remiss if I didn't warn uh, Ras that uh, it's not too late for med school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I should also say, I should also say, uh, if you want to look up more, more information on Gabe, uh, go to thetriallab.com. That's thetriallab.com. Uh, I'm not going to spell that because I think everybody should know how to spell that. And that's uh, it, it's easy enough to remember. I will uh, I will say, though, uh, my dyslexia kicks in and sometimes I spell it trail lab. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. That's a, yeah, trail that, lab. that is a yeah, that, that's a great uh, backpacking company. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> Might, maybe I'll go save that URL just for that. <laughs> That's right. Just yeah, exactly. Get those typos. <laughs> right. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about this case. So this case, the name of the case is uh, Thomas Joseph uh, Soulier. I think I got that right. Uh, versus uh, Suzuki Motor Corp. Uh, and I think your client went by Joey based on me uh, reading the transcripts. It sounded like his uh, he went by Joey. Uh, but this case was tried just earlier this year, March of 2023, uh, and resulted in just a tremendous verdict in $11 million. Uh, actually, it was a, I added it up. It's $11,005,000 uh, compensatory verdict and then a $150 million punitive damages verdict against Suzuki Motor Corp. Um, and uh, resulted from a crash that Im involved a Suzuki motorcycle. It was the 2009 Suzuki GSX-R600 uh, that, um, that Joey uh, Soulier had uh, literally, it looked like bought the week before, maybe maybe uh, about 10 days before the collision. 10 days. Uh, yeah, so he... he um, he he buys it. He's he's driving uh, southbound. Uh, I did over on Valley View Street. I wrote that down at 9:30 a.m. in Cypress, California. Uh, and essentially, a car pulled out in front of him to make a left turn uh, and stopped. And but there was enough time for uh, for Joey to stop, except that his brakes didn't work. It, specifically, his uh, front brake didn't work. Uh, and uh, caused him to uh, crash into uh, the side of this vehicle. He got thrown off the bike, got pinned in between the vehicle, the uh, car and the bike, and got pinned to the road. Um, and I, I, and Gabe, you might help me here a little bit. I, I saw that he had some serious leg injuries and uh, in, in maybe multiple knee operations, uh, as well as his shoulder, wrist, and elbow, but just uh, significant um uh, you know, numerous bone breakages because of this. Um, and, uh, and essentially the problem was, uh, was the front brake master cylinder, uh, failed on the, on 
the um, uh, GSXR 600 and uh, basically it was allowing it, it sounded like there might be two defects but but basically from what I heard it was allowing sort of corrosion to build up uh, and it would be it would basically cause a very spongy or when he when you pull on the brake it basically there'd be no pressure there and um, and so the front brake essentially didn't work at all um, and from what I understand from reading some of that, that when you're when you're pulling on the brakes, if you pull on both brakes on a motorcycle, almost 80 percent of your stopping power comes from the front brake. So to not have your front brake work is is uh, is is a serious problem. Um, this collision happened on June 8, 2013. So 10 years before the trial. And one thing that we'll get to, Gabe, I understand this case was tried once before, uh, resulting in a plaintiff's verdict. Uh, but then. Uh, got overturned and then had to be retried again. So uh, I, I definitely want to uh, spend some time talking about what it's like to try a case for a second time because uh, uh, it's not fun. But uh, so, well, I mean, uh, except when you have a $161 million verdict at the end, <laughs> then it becomes fun. <laughs> but, that, that lightens things up a little bit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, well, I think uh, as far as the basic facts of the collision, did I get those right, Gabe? Nailed it. And it's really, I mean, you absolutely nailed it. It's just, from my perspective, it's really amazing to step back and hear somebody like you summarize and then realize all the intricate details that I know that, like, I'm treating you as a juror right now with a summary. And it's like all the things that would have to be filled in or do have to be filled in for a more comprehensive understanding. But yeah, you nailed it for the big points for the most part. And I, Every time you said something, I wanted to add something a little bit more, right, but I right. sat on my hands here and just yeah. let you finish. But yes, <laughs> well, I, I think what I, I where I, I mean, we there's a lot to talk about here, but I think just to give the uh, give the listeners sort of an overview is I'd like you to talk a little bit about the evidence that you guys build up because essentially, you know, this was a problem that that Suzuki had noticed as early as 2004. And then there's just a number of things that happen in between then and the time that the that the bike gets sold. Uh, some of it uh, I thought was very sort of like uh, in intrigue going on where you, you've got corporate people sneaking onto dealerships and, and testing out brakes, like not telling the dealers they are and just saying, oh, you know, these don't work. Um, but uh, but yes, yeah, to talk them a little bit through. The evidence and the and then the other thing I guess I'd love to point out to our to our listeners, especially the trial lawyers, is one thing that I uh, that you did in the closing, and I, I thought it's just it, it's just a really effective way to do it was as you were walking the jury through the timeline of what Suzuki's knowledge was, you were also walking them through the timeline of Joey, uh, essentially that like when they first realized they had a problem with their motorcycle, he was 17 years old. And then, you know, and then you kind of take them, you know, together through that timeline, uh, you know, and 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 essentially building the case of, of all this knowledge they had and, you know, what knowledge Joey didn't have uh, when he bought this vehicle. But but talk a little bit about that, that evidence. Let me. So, wow, that was a you asked me 30 questions. Yes. In one I, I, put, I, I put it all in. There. Right. Exactly. So let me address the last thing first. I yeah. it's my style. And th because this is a great trials podcast, and I assume your listeners want to hear different styles about how we present. I'm a storyteller. That's what we do as a job for our profession. We tell stories. I mean, a, a district attorney will get up there and just tell rote facts and it's boring, but they win because everybody hates criminals or whatever. And, you know, they they own the keys, the 
to the courthouse so they think they're great lawyers. But right. the truly great lawyers tell stories. So when you were talking about how I walked through the timeline, not only did I walk through the timeline, I physically walked through the courtroom. There was one of the things you had talked about was, um, or I think you had talked about was the cause the didn't cause the collision, caused the exigent circumstance for the driver. Well, I walked to the back of the courtroom for that, and I basically laid out. We're about sixty feet apart right now, right? And in this distance, this is about what Joey had, right? And you see the jury playing ping pong, looking at me, looking at the witness. This is when my accident reconstructionist is on the stand or when their accident recon is on the stand. I use movement through the courtroom because we're we're essentially producing our own movie, our right. own show for these jurors. So it's really important. I was teaching my co-counsel. He'd only been a lawyer for 10 months, uh, but I've known him, worked with him, put on trials with him for better part of 10 years. Um, but I would tell him, let's get some movement in. Let's move. Let's show these jurors a, a story. Let's show them the movie. So it's interesting you use those those that terminology. Um, let me lay out. I mean, you 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 kind of touched on what this case was, but this this break had two different defects to it. Actually, before I get there, I really because I won't I'll forget it if I don't. There are so many fingerprints on this on this verdict. I can't right. take credit. My name is on it. I, you know, I put the show on and yeah, I got the verdict, but there's a, a great team of lawyers in Atlanta that I work with, Randy Edwards and Paul Pyland, who you're very familiar mm -hmm. with. Yep. Um, we set up this consortium of attorneys early on, and we all worked together to share case theories and evidence uh, documents. When I first asked Suzuki for discovery, they gave me 300,000 documents, not pages, documents. All of them were in Japanese. Okay. And I was like, give me the English translations. And they said, we don't have them. And I said, that's a lie. That's, that's ridiculous. But no problem. I will go get them translated. And you're going to wear my translations because they will be certified translations that I got. And then, and then Suzuki all of a sudden was like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Then once I got some some translated documents, I found other attorneys nationwide, Randy and Paul being two of them, other attorneys in Mississippi, Kentucky, Florida, Texas, California. Uh, and I found all these litigations nationwide. We all had the same allegation of brake failure, same mm -hmm. defect. So for me to take credit for this is not, that would be fraudulent on my part. There's so many fingerprints on this case. I mean, my colleagues in California, I'd pick up the phone 12 midnight, two o'clock in the morning. Hey, what do you think of this? And they would answer. And it's like, this is shared among people, everybody, just like yourself. Like I would call you and yeah. your fingerprint would be on this, you know? So let me start there. But the, the evidence in this case, this, this break had two problems. It had a design defect and a manufacturing defect. And ultimately what happened was these two dissimilar metals inside this break would cause corrosion. So when you have dissimilar metal contact in the presence of an electrolyte, what you have is a battery, right? Mm -hmm. And I get the terms wrong, cathode and diode or anode and cathode or whatever it is, but you have a battery. And when you think about a battery, if you open up a, um, a, a, a remote control or your car battery and you see the corrosion on top, well, that's galvanic corrosion, okay? You have dissimilar metals making contact in the presence of an electrolyte corroding. And that corrosion creates 
gas, but it also creates particulate matter, hard, hard particulate matter. So the design defect, essentially, if you think of a chimney that goes straight up, if the design defect had a chimney that went sideways. So the gas couldn't escape above a certain level. And that's where you would get a sponginess. Right. But you would also have this particulate matter that could cause a sudden unexpected failure because of a seal disruption. And the analogy I gave in trial, and I think I might've stole it from Jeff Hyatt, our expert, or Randy in Atlanta, is think about a pine needle underneath a windshield wiper, right? A windshield wiper has to have a perfect seal to get that water off and it works great. And then a leaf or a pine needle gets underneath and it doesn't work at all. Even though the thing's swishing back and forth, it's not moving water. And then it'll eject the pine needle and it starts working again, right? That would be an example of a seal disruption, a sudden seal right. disruption. And that happened as well in these breaks all, all the time. But because it was like a lightning strike, it was really hard for, really difficult for Suzuki to figure out. But more importantly, it's really difficult to believe. And experts don't want to believe it. When it happens to riders, they don't want to believe it. You know, one of the things I joked around with is like sudden unexpected failure while riding, sudden unexpected brake failure while driving only happens in TV shows like Chips and, and you know, the the Dukes of Hazard, Right. Whatever, right? And, but it happens. And Suzuki got word, got wind of this through multiple reports of people saying, my brake just suddenly didn't work and I ended up in a ditch or I ended up in the back of the pickup truck in front of me that stopped or a woman there's documentation that says you know she hit a deer that came out in front of her when she couldn't stop in time but Suzuki and Gabe, focused... i'm sorry not to interrupt you but it, it's it, that also circles back to how important it is to be able to get discovery of other similar incidents and things like that because when i was reading your complaint and on the first several pages it was talking about what happened you're sort of dealing with that bias against motorcycle riders. Mm -hmm. And one of the facts that you point out is, you know, that there's no, there were no skid marks on the road to indicate that, um, you know, that braking had been successful or that it had been apl applied, but it goes both ways, right? Because without more, it's like, well, was this just somebody who wasn't paying attention? And, you know, we'll talk about it. You did have, in addition to forensic evidence, you had witnesses and other folks who could talk about the fact that that he was trying to break but when you when that case comes in it's just a one-off where we have to be skeptical um so often um especially when we're dealing with warts on a case or, or cases where you're going to be dealing with a bias and that's why but to know that what you eventually discovered but to at least have those other cases initially then you know okay there's something here. It's not just a client who's lying to me or somebody who doesn't know what happened. Yeah, we always want to vet our clients, but Yvonne, you, you nailed it. And what's really disheartening to me, even to this day, after this verdict, the forums, the riders, they they blame Joey. They think he's just a clown rider. They can't believe that it would be a front brake defect. They think it's a misapplication, some of them. And these are people, it's human nature, as you know, Right. It's human nature. This would never happen to me, right? Mm -hmm. I'm too good for that. I'm too skilled of a rider. I would downshift. I would look further ahead in the road. So there's this, this human nature of disbelief that the parade of horribles could ever happen to me, whether it's medical malpractice, 
a car accident or whatever. What I tell jurors and my friends is, you know, the three of us are talking right now and we don't know that 10 minutes after one, we're done talking, you know, I'm going to go drive down to the store to pick up dinner for my family and a drunk driver is going to T-bone me. And, you know, and it's unknown to us right now. It's the future, right? No day is ever promised or guaranteed. And we don't get to pick the moment of our misfortune. And in this case, that happened so often where you don't get to pick the moment of your misfortune for all these riders that were reporting things. But more importantly, they weren't reporting them at certain points because they thought it was user error. They mm -hmm. couldn't believe it themselves that this could happen to them. And Joey was one of those people. So Suzuki used that to their advantage to say, well, they didn't report it till after the announcement of the recall. They're just, you know, they're, they're, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, they're uh, malingerers, if you will, or whatever. Right. But that right. couldn't be further from the truth. They, what had happened was it validated a disbelief in their experience. And that's exactly what happened with Joey. And I mean, there's more to that story. All right, so Yvonne, it's always good to be prepared at trial, right? Right. And who can always help you be prepared and your best at trial? Without a doubt, Legal Technology Services. That's right. And you can look them up at LegalTechService.com. That's LegalTech, T-E-C-H, Service.com. And, uh, and they are just fantastic at trial. Our firm has used them for every trial that we've been to. Uh, they're fantastic, always prepared, always helpful. Uh, and uh, you can say hello to Bob, Melanie, uh, Liz, or Patrick, or any of the other people in their team. But uh, LegalTechnologyServices.com, they can help you not only with your technology at trial, uh, they can help you with day in the life videos, they can help you with mediation uh, settlement videos, they can help you with demonstratives, even including, I one time had them build me a model of a panel that was, I think, 12 feet long by 10 feet tall that had fallen on our client and shattered his leg. And they built one for me that I could use in the courtroom. So they're fantastic. Please go to Legal Technology Services, and that's LegalTechService.com. One of the points you made, I, I think, and and uh, is that the Suzuki knew that the reports they were getting of this happening were underreported because it, it's likely that when you hear of a break not working right or somebody complaining of a break not working right, that it might be a uh, maintenance error or or you know whoever's working on it uh, may have not bled the brakes right or something like that. So you kind of made the point that well the dealers aren't going to want to report these because it it might be you know they it look it see it's embarrassing it's like they don't know how to bleed the brakes correctly and so so they knew that these these reports they were getting were underreported and that was in their own documents right in their own documents and they said you know we've gotten 68 reports but we expect it to be in the hundreds because we know dealers don't report this all the time they yeah. look at it just like you said that we must have not bled it correctly ourselves Japan, when I say Japan, I mean Suzuki Motor Japan. Japan even put together a new protocol of how to bleed brakes. One of the most basic mechanical processes that you can do on a motorcycle. Japan felt like we need to teach these people how to bleed a brake. And it was just, it's absurd, right? Yeah. That, and then it, it really what it was is they weren't capturing the hydrogen gas. They thought it was just air. And that was the moment in 2013 in January when they captured and identified it as hydrogen gas 
that they knew this was a chemical process, that they knew they had a corrosion problem. And that was the moment for them. I mean, it, it, before that was a, another moment, but that was the moment in January 2013. They could not deny this anymore. And Joey buys his bike five months later. They wait 10 months to even announce a recall. And that's all part of the whole bad yeah. acting on their part. Right. I mean, when you were hearing some of these documents described in your opening and your closing and, and in, in the first amended complaint, which you sent us, I, I mean, could you even believe your eyes as you're coming across this? Because I feel like in a lot of our auto product stuff, especially these days, a lot of it is about what's not there or what they didn't do. Right. And instead of, you know, and, and you have to work a little harder, um, documents wise to find the good documents that are for you. But a lot of times it's just what's not there or what's not really said. These documents are kind of crazy. <laughs> I mean, were you just like, pinch me when you're reading some of these and what the kind of, I mean, cause it's almost like an answer to a lot of the defenses that they would raise otherwise, in addition to sort of this being the smoking gun kind of. Let's give context, right? So one of the documents you're probably referring to is one that was released a couple months before Joey's collision. That said, oh no, this one was in December. So seven months before that said, this is a recall matter. It involves human lives, prioritize it. Right. And that was, I mean, that was one of the most damaging documents. And then they don't. They don't right. follow their right. own directive, okay? But what's what's more maddening to me, so my experience is there. it's always recorded. These people, I don't think any product manufacturer that creates a product that ends up having a defect wants to hurt people. They want to fix the problem. So I will tell you, in most of my products cases, I always there's always the documentation. Whether or not you get it is different, but it's always documented, right? Um, they're trying to figure out what the problem is. They're doing internal investigations and they're reporting it to the engineers to figure out how to fix the problem. So to answer your question directly, yes, it was one of those. These are incredible. How are they not settling this case? Right. And they yeah. would defend on that didn't mean what you think it means. Right. That's a translation error or we didn't know that that was a problem. And then throughout my trial, they doubled down and tripled down on that position where they said a defective front brake isn't even a safety issue for the rider or the public. And I made them repeat that multiple times. And I would look at the jury like, this is what we're dealing with. Yeah. Like, yeah are you hearing this? difference? Right. Were you, um, side note, were you able to get the, I can't remember from, if I'm thinking of the complaint or your, um, Closing, were you able to talk about the recall? So in you're the, getting in into the, the two different trials now. So it, okay. you asked the right question. Sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> you asked the right question. And I have to answer it according to the two different trial uh, chronology. In yeah. the first trial, we focused heavily on the recall from the beginning. Our first witnesses were the Japanese witnesses or the corporate witnesses. And then I wasn't able to establish causation between the recall condition as described or defined by Suzuki and what caused my client's injury. But in my opinion, and in the jury's opinion, I circumstantially proved it using Suzuki's own people. The Court of right. Appeals disagreed with me. They overturned my first verdict, sent us back, gave us an opportunity for a new trial. We ended up earning that and got the new trial. So in the That's second trial, 
The judge, same judge, by the way, used the appellate opinion as a playbook for how we were going to be allowed to pursue presentation of this case. And in a case about a recalled defective product, for the first two and a half weeks of this trial, we were not allowed to use the word recall or talk about it at all. Hmm. Yeah. And I told defense counsel from the beginning, you don't want to talk about recall. Be careful what you wish for, because we can talk about your investigation of the right. recall, of what led to the recall. But if we can't talk about the recall, it's going to be left out in the air that you guys did nothing to fix it. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so then, and the jurors were getting wind. They, they know, they can sense things. So by the time two and a half weeks go by and the word recall finally gets dropped on a Friday afternoon, see you on Monday, folks, their eyes lit up. Boom, there it is. I knew it. I knew this was a problem Suzuki about. Literally, they looked around me. Like I'm standing in between the, our courtroom was kind of a weird setup and literally the jurors looked around me at like defense, like, mm -hmm. ah, I knew it. Oh I man! It. And then it was see you on Monday. Think about that for two days. Right. right. So yeah, we couldn't talk about the recall at all until we laid the proper foundation and it really yeah. worked to my advantage. Turn your weaknesses into your strengths. Yeah. And that's yeah. what we did throughout this trial. Every opportunity we had. It's funny you say it because I, I had a very similar experience in a case against Ford Motor Company. And I've told this story before, but it's just where the they, the Ford had worked very hard to keep certain things out of evidence and the judge had gone with them. And then, you know, as the trial went on, uh, including a number of complaints and, and an ultimate recall and um, and um, they opened the door to it and it ends up coming in. And that it was like, you know, just watching the jury as you're cross examining their corporate rep about it. You know, just the, the light bulbs going off in their head being like, you know, you guys have just been hiding all this stuff. And not only that, but they had given us a bunch of documents and they had redacted the hell out of them. And so we just decided to just put those documents up and show it to the jury because we're like, you know, the jury's sitting there thinking about, well, what aren't they showing us? What's all this redacted stuff up there? Like, you know, you know, so it's it's reasons like that that I don't I tend to not object unless yeah. it's what we call in California a Kenimer issue. A, an expert didn't testify at a deposition and now is bringing up something new, but I don't object. Cause I find the jurors are like, just shut up, let them talk. Like leading who cares? Like they can right. fix that foundation yeah. maybe, but yeah, it's, I always love to point out, look what they're not, look what they don't want you to know. Right. The attorney yeah. in my case, uh, the opposing counsel, he objected in my close. He objected in my open. And I mean, he took, he objected and took away my PowerPoint. In both of those. <laughs> right. And I don't I don't use PowerPoints to read from. I use them as outlines. So I was ready for it, but it was the jury looking like, what are you hiding? Yeah. What are you trying to keep from us? Right. It didn't work in their favor at all. We've met with the jurors a couple of times and they referenced a lot of this stuff afterwards. We've had dinner. Yeah. With them. yeah. And they referenced all the like deception, the attempts at deception and everything that that Suzuki pursued. And it just didn't work in their favor clearly one of the one of the things that i wanted to make sure we mentioned this is uh you know is um pieces of evidence that i just thought was you, you know just great but was that they that suzuki or somebody from suzuki had come over to california and had actually gone to the dealership where joey had bought his motorcycle and then like surreptitiously 
tested the brakes without telling the dealer they were doing this and had determined that about 10% of the, the front brakes on the ones they had in the room, you know, being ready to be sold as new weren't working. And, uh, you know, so it, it, and you, you made a, a great point, which is, you know, don't you think Joey would have liked to have known this when he's making the decision to buy this motorcycle that, uh, Hey, you know, these, these aren't working. Um, it, it just makes for a great, like failure to warn makes, I mean, and just the whole, uh, cover up, uh, just, it, it makes for a great story. And it makes for a great way to tell the story, right? Yeah. It's one of my favorite facts. And Randy Edwards, when he tried his case in Atlanta in 2018 for his client, Mr. Johns, like I had the serendipitous like fortune of this dealership being where my client bought his bike from, right? Right. So it was literally like, this could have been, I could paint the picture. This could have been the bike Joey bought a few months later. We don't know. Right. But yeah. you tell the story. Go ahead, Yvonne. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. So when you tell the story and his name is Kudo, Mr. Kudo comes over from Japan and meets with the Brian Malachek or Muthig in the U.S. And they don't tell the dealership they're there. They just are there to investigate what they're hearing complaints of. And they go out to the lot and it's all used previously on bikes. And it's Burt's Mega Mall, which sells a boat. They're the biggest bike dealership in the country for, you know, previously owned bikes, including Suzuki's. And Suzuki knows this, by the way. 4,000 bikes were subject through Burt's Mega Mall alone or whatever. So they go and they just start squeezing brakes. They don't tell the dealer what they're doing. They go start squeezing brakes. There's 20 bikes on the line, maybe 30. And they find two out of 20 don't work. And the way I tell the story is I, I sort of, um, what's my word? I, I sarcastically say, you know, they find that 10% of the bikes are su suffer from this defect and, and they go right in and they tell the dealership management, right? <clears throat> no, they do not. No, they go back to Japan and they, and they tell Japan, Hey, 10% of these didn't work. And what does Japan say? Japan says, Hey, call and let's get those bikes. And when they call to get those bikes and, and they call Brian Muthig, Brian says, and in his, in his email, he says, that's going to be difficult because we told the dealership there was nothing wrong with anything, right? So you see this deception, like this lack of information of why they're there. And then when they do talk, they're like, oh, no, no everything's fine. Everything's no problem. And yeah. then now they can't go get the bikes because they've said nothing's wrong when Japan knows they need to capture the bikes. So then the part that you may or may not have picked up on, I use that word capture deliberately, because then we see a memo called capturing activities. And Japan knows we need to capture these bikes before any mechanic manipulates them, because we've got to figure out what's happening. Because if you start squeezing the brake, the gas goes out, we got to, we got to get it before anybody touches it. When a customer brings in a bike that says it doesn't work, let's get it before anybody touches it. So they say, how can we possibly get customers to bring their motorcycles in to be looked at without alarming the public as to why we're doing it. Let's have a springtime sales event where we'll invite everybody in, we'll give them a free multi-point inspection and we'll try and sell them products. So we can make 80 to 250 grand on this. But in the meantime, we'll squeeze some brakes and figure out what's going on and we'll get updated information. And in the memo, it's called capturing activities. It's the first time they'd ever done it. 
And it was one of these like absolute attempts at deception of the public that the jurors absolutely hated. And it all happened before like seven months, six months before they announced a recall. So they know they have a problem. They know they have to do something about it. And under US law, the TRED Act, they have five days from the date they know or should have known of a safety-related defect to notify NHTSA. Right. So this is a clear yeah. moment of, I mean, even in December, when I told you that other memo of it's a matter recall matter involves human lives, like they have five days to notify NHTSA and they wait like 1600 days, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredible. It's so when people say this is a huge punitive damages award, it's egregious. It's like, no, it's not. No. And the yeah. part about this, and it's not because the company makes, they sell $95 million of product a day, a day, $33.5 billion in gross sales a year. Mm. But more importantly, you know, you talked about uh, uh, Ford and if you're talking about, you know, the airbags or the tires or whatever, tires, probably a bad example, but most product cases, as you guys know, it, the defect affects the consumer who bought the product, right? You buy a car, it's got a bad seatbelt. The only person really in danger is the person who bought that car. But when you have an out of control motorcycle, mm-hmm. it doesn't just affect the rider on the back. It affects anybody on the street with that motorcycle. A mom pushing a stroller across a crosswalk. You could be sitting in a hair salon at an intersection and this bike comes through the window and kills you. Yeah. And it goes out of control around a corner, right? So this really has a wider application in terms of public safety. And Suzuki really hated those arguments. They called those, you know, reptile arguments and everything else that wanted to keep <laughs> us from talking about the danger to the public. And But their own testimony was like, this isn't a safety right. issue. Yeah. It's like, well, okay, right. let, let's let the yeah. jury decide if it's a safety issue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, I wanted to ask you, so in the in sort of getting this case ready, and Yvonne's already touched on this a little bit, but when you're when you're doing jury selection, or even before that, how are you, how are you preparing the jury or or trying to to ferret out, you know, bias against motorcycle riders? And, you know, looking at pictures of the GSXR 600, somebody who doesn't ride motorcycles, I mean, I would call it a crotch rocket. I mean, it looks like somebody who's going to be, you know, riding fast down the street. Now, now the evidence in this case was that Joey was going, I think, about 30 miles an hour in a 45. So it wasn't like he was speeding. You had good evidence on that. But what are you what are you doing, you know, on the front end to try and get rid of those biases as best you can? So this was the first time I ever worked with a jury consultant and I'll never not do it again. Right. Like it was so instrumental. Our jury consultant was incredible on this one. Um, And it, it, and as compared to the first trial, it's obvious, like they work, right. They do, they know what they're doing. So um, my, I had an epiphany moment in the middle of jury selection where I, I realized through the consultant um, telling me like, we're not trying to pick good jurors. We're trying to get rid of bad ones. Right. So I stopped trying to rehabilitate them. And I just started asking the questions. I mean, some of the jurors, I think it was in the first trial more than the second one, but they called them murder cycles. Oh, right. Yeah. Wow. I haven't heard that. Yeah. yeah murder yeah. cycles. And I just went with it. Like, right. These are dangerous bikes. Right. Right. So what are the only safety me- like measures we have in, in a motorcycle? We don't have seatbelts. We don't have airbags, so are brakes important? Yeah, why? 
I mean, and tell me how you feel about that. And tell me how you feel about, you know, blah, blah, blah. And do we, is it always going to be the, what about assumption of risk I talked about, right? Or do we blame, do the motorcyclists always assume the risk of everything that happens? And they'd always say, yes, they're dangerous. Mm -hmm. Of course they assume the risk. And I, I would talk and I would say, what about unknown risks, right? Like they assume the risk of certain things happening, but what about things they don't expect to happen? Do they assume those risks? Um, and it's it's not conditioning, it's discussion. Right. But ultimately, like the one thing I I love Wadir, and I've never I've been fortunate enough to be able to get jurors to engage to where they yes. raise their hand to talk. Yeah. And I think that comes down to creating a really safe environment for them. Um, showing my vulnerabilities of things that I'm concerned about with my own case, with my own body, with my own look, with my own cadence. Um, and then giving them the opportunity to let them know, like, listen, you're safe here. Tell me, yeah. I want to know you hate things now instead of a month from now. Right. If you hate, exactly. you hate the way I look, you hate the way I sound, you're not going to hurt my feelings. You're going to hurt my feelings a month from now. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like digital law marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. It's funny because it's it's one of the things that I think is hard for trial lawyers uh, to learn and to do effectively because you know we're always you know trained to persuade and to convince and really in voir dire you're not there to persuade anybody they're not there to convince you're there to let them talk and find out what their feelings are and if they're the right person for this jury and and it's it you know it's 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 something that goes against the nature of a lot of trial lawyers and so it takes time and and effort to really uh learn that but uh but it's such an important part of just allowing people to 
tell their feelings and, and try and make it and exactly like you're saying, make it a safe environment and say, look, you know, if you're not the right person for this jury, I mean, for this trial, that's fine. You know, not everybody is, you know, and we just want to know who the, you know, who the right people are for this trial. Yeah, to your point, like, I think if you start advocating in voir dire, you've lost the case. That's right. Like, they yeah. start seeing it right away. And they're like, yeah. why are you trying to persuade me? I haven't seen any evidence. You're trying to change my mind. You're putting words in my mouth. I think Keith, Keith Mitnick does a great job with this. Like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I use I use Keith Mitnick-isms all the time. Like, is there probably a chance that, you know, despite your best efforts to set your feelings aside, the kind of basic Keith Mitnick stuff? Yeah. Um, but a lot of times what I'll do is I'll try and interject a dialogue between jurors, yeah. right? And and from the outset, I'll say, can we all agree that that we're not going to get angry at anybody else for disagreeing with us in this jury, right? Like, if you say you like this and they don't like it, you're not going to see these people ever again. You know, like, let's just, I want to understand where you're coming from. And then juror 12 will say this and juror nine, I'll say, how do you feel about that? And they'll say, I agree with that. I'm like, okay, so you guys agree. I mean, is that is that a common feeling among the folks here in the jury? And somebody's like, I don't agree. I'm, tell me why not. And then they'll start talking to each other. And I kind of sit back. And now I know I've created a campfire atmosphere, yeah. right? I've created a safe place where everyone knows they're not going to get a finger pointed at them, a fist raised or shaken at them. And I, I'm going to accept and I'm going to thank them for those gifts. And I do thank them for the gifts. Like, I will say, you just gave me a gift. Thank you for that. Like, now I understand something I didn't understand before, right? And because of that, it's been very helpful um, in getting jurors to open up. And from a jury consultant perspective, my jury consultant wanted, she wanted me to be on script and I'm not really a script guy. But once yeah. I figured it out and laid the foundation with the jurors, they could, they were in a safe place. Then I read the script and it ended up working out perfect. Um, the other, oh, sorry, go ahead, Yvonne. Oh, no, I just, well, it just made me think, but it's, it's off the topic of Vordire, so I don't know if you want to stay. If no, I, I was going to ask, so another hurdle I saw in this case, and I was just wondering how it played out, but, you, you know, you've got this other driver who clearly made a mistake. I mean, the jury even found that she made a mistake. Uh, and, you know, I guess I'm wondering how much did Suzuki spend their time trying to point the finger at her, or it sounds like she pointed maybe at both of them. And then, and then how did she get the jury, you know, I, it, I mean, we, what we've talked about makes sense on why they wouldn't necessarily put the, the, put the blame on her for causing the injury, which is what they found. But just talk about how you addressed the fact that you had, you know, somebody who, who, you know, was an at fault driver, but that, that really what caused your client's injuries in this case was Suzuki and, and them not doing the right thing with their brakes. So we had, I had that discussion today with one of my co-counsels as well and in, in doing some of the post-trial motions. Um, Suzuki has argued in their motion for new trial that that was improper. There was an error in the law that the jurors had to have found that she was responsible. And the testimony we had from both sides, accident reconstructionists, was that at the speed and distance that was available to Joey, that when he appreciated, you know, with PRT, perception reaction time, he would have had sufficient time and distance to apply the brakes without even maximum braking capacity, that he would have had time and distance to apply the brakes without skidding the tires. And I use, and, and so 
because I had agreement on both sides to that, the argument in closing was the driver caused the exigent circumstance, but she didn't cause the collision. The collision was caused because the brake didn't work, right? That you heard both experts say that at this speed and distance, if that brake worked right, and I use that word because they both said it, if that brake worked right, he doesn't even have to lock up his tires. He goes, to, he, he has a bad day, no, not even a bad day. He has a bad moment where he might shake a fist at a driver like, you idiot, right. what are you doing? To having a catastrophic injury that's life-changing. Yeah. Right? So the jury, I think, I'm trying to couch my words here a little bit, but I think what ended up happening is by the time it got to that point, the jury distrusted everything Suzuki was putting in front of them that it just made sense. My position made sense. Right. That it was like, I would use their expert saying it. Their expert's own testimony was he didn't need maximum braking or with the, with the brake that worked, he wouldn't have even laid a skid mark down. He would have been able to stop in time. So if their expert is saying that, then what can we conclude? We can conclude the brake didn't work right. along with the other evidence we've shown you, right? Not even the OSI evidence, the actual forensic evidence. I mean- when you think about a bike, if the front tire locks up, the rear tire comes off the ground, it's going to leave a lighter skid mark. But in this case, it left a heavier skid mark. And they were like, well, that's him not applying the brake right. Well, if he's not applying the brake right, then it doesn't capsize, right? Like if he's not applying the brake, it keeps going and whatever. There's a bunch of arguments. So they just stopped trusting what Suzuki had to sell. Right. I, I was thinking about that when you said that, that they were essentially trying to say that the front brake is not a safety device or not a safety feature. I mean, I, I don't know who, who on the defense side, not to give them any tips, but who would have come up with that idea and said, hey, this is a good thing to tell a jury that brakes aren't safety features. So this, this is going to take a turn you might not want to take. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is where it gets, you just got back from Japan. So right. you have an understanding about this more so than other people. Yeah. yeah. Japan is not America. Right. Japan is a culture steeped in honor, in pride, in ego, in, um, I, I say it this way, the, the sins of the father pass to the son and to the father's father. So if me in my position, I, you know, I'm, I'll be 50 in two weeks, a 50 year old man with a 12 year old son, and I've got a 10 year old daughter. If I, if I'm in Japan, I'm a Japanese national and I'm an engineer in Japan and I admit some sort of fault in my job performance that causes shame to my mm -hmm. corporation, I lose my job. I, and mind you, your job is your identity. I lose my job. I probably don't get hired by anybody else ever again. My son, who also wants to be an engineer, doesn't get hired. And my father's life work is also now in jeopardy because I've shamed the family name. So I think part of their, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a defense attorney's position. I think it was a cultural position that they say, we can't possibly assume or accept that this is a safety issue because the testing we did shows that you would notice this sponginess before, and they must be lying Americans that want to litigate about this sudden seal disruption theory stuff. That can't happen. That's so unlikely. That's a lightning strike. 
So I, I think it was a cultural thing that caused them to pursue that. Yeah. The problem is they they avail themselves of our market, which is the biggest market for these bikes, which means you have to adopt the culture of the market you're playing in. And you're subjected to an American jury. Yeah. And you know, it, it's it's interesting because I heard I was hearing somebody talk about, you know, this sort of Japanese mindset when they were uh, coming up in the car industry. Um, you know, how they they sort of have this mindset, which sounds great, which is instead of catching problems when they're out in the field, prevent the problems from happening in the first place. So you you know deal with that with quality control. And that that is a great idea. And and it's but the problem is is that if you miss something you know, going through that process, and then you start having issues in the field. It's just like you said, nobody wants to admit that, because then it means they didn't do their job at stopping it in the first place, which is which, which is what they're supposed to do They, you know, their sort of mindset. And so, it, so it's almost like it works against them once there are problems in the field, that they almost don't want to admit those problems into the in the field, because then it's a shame on them. You quoted, you didn't even know you did it, but you quoted Mr. Matsumoto. He basically said, if we can stop it, our idea is to stop in the first place so it never happens. And like literally it was almost verbatim to how you phrased it. Um, and I think that ultimately that's right. That they, they in this case, the dissimilar metals, right? It's called galvanic coupling. That is a concept that's been known for nearly a hundred years. They should have known this was a problem. They overlooked it. The problem in this case is that's still present in the post-recall product. There is still dissimilar metals making contact. The only difference is that chimney that held the gas in, they moved it vertical so it lets the gas out. So they corrected the only indicator that there was corrosion going on inside these brakes. So right. now all you're left with is seal disruption issues, and you're having them still. Suzuki admitted in 2018 and did nothing to clarify it in 2023 that they were getting up to two calls a week post-recall, after the recall, of similar failures of these brakes that led to the recall. And my metallurgist, Ramesh Carr, found the exact same corrosion and byproducts in pre-recall and post-recall brake exemplars. So we know it's still going on to yeah. this day, to this day, this bike is on the street with this corrosion still happening. And Japan says, we don't want to hear about it. We've already issued a recall. So put it someplace else. Right. And side note, the Hayabusa line, which is also a GSXR, but it's a 1300 CC had a recall earlier this year. Guess what it's for front brake. <laughs> Is it the wow. same thing? I don't know. I'd have to look at exactly what model is. Right. I don't want yeah. to start slinging assumptions, but I can tell you, I I, I know where I'm leaning right now. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Um, talk a little bit about um, how you you went about uh, proving up damages. Did you have an an, an ask for the jury, or uh, just talk about how you how you address damages and and start with compensatory, and then we'll move on to punitives. Okay. So that um, <clears throat> this is. I brought in Robbie Munoz, my co-counsel, for this specific issue. And it sounds weird, but I said, Robbie, I'm too close to Joey. I've known him for too long, and I know the story too well. I need a fresh face in here to 
paint the picture of damages to the jury. You're a young attorney, a, a newer attorney. Um, I trust you. I've worked with you. You were there when this case came in with the other firm we were at. Um, you want to come in and be the damages guy. So Robbie painted the picture of damages through, I told him, I find it most effective, not when you have a, a whiny client, but when you have his family and friends whining for him. Right. Yeah. Right. I want the David and Goliath. I want the champion that jurors can root for. The guy who says, it's not that I can't do anything. I just can't do anything like I used to. I'll do anything. You know, and Joey was like, I'll skateboard. I'll try and do all this stuff. I'll still snowboard, blah, blah, blah. And then Robbie had, he basically took Joey's sister, Joey's mom, Joey's brother, Joey's friend, and painted a little 15-minute vignette of, what Joey, how Joey is different. And they were all different. They weren't the same thing. We weren't, you know, compiling on the same, oh, he's, he can't walk. No, somebody would have, Robbie, Robbie approached it as, if you could describe in one word, Joey, how would you do it? One was resilient. One was determined. One was my hero. One was whatever. And then they would talk about his, his damages, how it affected Joey's life. Right. And then Joey's big thing, his purpose in life is like snowboarding. It's his freedom. It's his, it's his, Touch with the world. Some people love surfing. Some people love golf. Some people love bike riding. Some people love yoga. For Joey, it's snowboarding. And at some point in trial, it got really annoying to me to talk about snowboarding. But then it hit me. It was like, it's not about the board. It's about what the board means. It's about the purpose for life. And in 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 uh, J Japanese, it's called the, um, what's it, the keiki? The Keiki, I'll have to go back, but it's your reason for being, your reason for right. being. And we we described it that way. So I think your question is how did how did we value that, right? And it was in trial. I stole, I steal everything. We steal everything from each other, right? Yeah. And we don't care. Take it from me. I take it from you, as plaintiffs' attorneys. Um, I used. I think I got it from the Simon Group, who was my my co counsel, Simon Law Group. Uh, which is Robbie Munoz, but more well-known is Bob Simon, Robert Simon from the Simon Law Group and his twin brother, Brad, who I've known since law school. I've known him a long time before they were the Simon Group. And they have this thing called the man in black, the man in black. And it's sort of like this pseudo figure of giving you the fork in the road option in life. And in this case, I basically had the man in black approach Joey as he was, I painted this picture and I told the jury, I want to take you to a surplus reality. Come, come on a walk with me. And I took him to Burt's Megamall that day that they were squeezing brakes, the day that Joey bought his bike. And the man in black shows up and the man in black takes him for, says, hey, you want to go for a ride you'll never forget, right? And Joey's like, I'm always down for it, whatever. And then the man in black takes him on the ride right to Joey's hair salon, which was his purpose for living at the time professionally. And we basically, the man in black offers him money and Joey's like, what's this for? What did I do to deserve this? The man in black says, you didn't do anything to deserve this. It's what you're going to have to give up when you make these decisions, blah, blah, blah. So we end up putting piles of money in front of Joey through the man in black. And Joey's like, no deal. I'm not taking that. It's the devil versus the angel on the shoulder, right? Mm -hmm. Classic story. Joey's like, no deal. I'm not taking that. And when you tell the story right, you're not telling the jurors to step into Joey's shoes. You're trying to get them to understand 
what Joey would do. Remember the, the, the golden rule says you can't tell them, you can't ask them to put themselves in their shoes, but you have to ask them to value what the damages mean to the plaintiff in the plaintiff's position, what it means to the yeah. plaintiff, not what it means to you, the juror. So the man in black analogy gives you an opportunity to, to, to tell the story of Joey or your client through a surplus reality, putting up money and, and to compensate, the only thing we can do to compensate, and the client declining it. I'm not interested in that. I'd rather just go live my life the way it was before. Yeah. And I put up $2 million for the decade, 10 years from 2013 to 23. And Joey walks out, says no deal. But yet the man in black pulls him back. Wait a second. That's just for the decade in the past. The decade moving forward, you have four decades you're going to live still, right? So we put up two, four, six, eight mil. And then there was damages in terms of like, whatever. There was other damages for his, um, the, the liens that he had. And that we, normally I wouldn't even blackboard liens, uh, medical costs. But in right. this case, we wanted to. It just made sense to. Um, and then he had a future back surgery. He faces a future possible. This was my, one of my favorites, a 10% chance of losing his leg above the knee. Oh, wow. And that's a bad injury. And above yeah. the knee amputation is a terrible injury. Below the knee, kind of a non-event. Above the knee changes the game entirely. And Suzuki's fatal error was, was minimizing a 10% chance of losing a leg. They're like 10% chance. They went after the expert on that. Like 10%, this parade of horribles has to happen for that 10% to, to, to like actual come to fruition, right? Yeah, and they tried to impeach him. A guy, a lawyer who has no medical training trying to impeach an orthopedic surgeon, right? It looked horrible. But in punitive damages closing, I used that to my advantage. And I said, you know, a 10% chance they minimize the significance of a 10% chance of losing a leg. Well, they make $33.7 billion a year. If I take 10% of that at $3.37 billion, are they going to have the same level of enthusiasm of saying that that's an insignificant amount? <laughs> right. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and you saw jurors raise their eyebrows and look around me again, like, whoa, <laughs> he's got a good point. Right. I go, you know, but a leg doesn't grow back. They're going to make that same amount of money next year and the year after. And they've been making that for the last 10. And I told the juror, I'm not asking you for $3.37 I asked you to consider what a billion dollars would look like to this company. I'm not even asking you for it, right? So when you start painting these numbers of what it means to the corporation, what their argument has been to try and impeach your client with their smoke and mirrors with their, you know, their deceit and everything else. I just, you, you start building the blocks, the Lego blocks, and all of a sudden you have a castle at the end. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you, and, and and we've been taking up so much of your time and we appreciate it, but I wanted to ask you how, so Joey, um, usually in cases like this with the tremendous verdict, the client has got to do fantastic on the stand. So I assume that happened, but how did Joey do when he was on the stand? So much. Robbie worked with him and I worked with him, but mostly Robbie worked with him and spent a lot of time really building the rapport. Compared to 2018, it was night and day for not just Joey, but Joey's girlfriend at the time. Still, they're still together, obviously. And Joey's family. It was just now they knew what to expect. Yeah. And Joey was just more relaxed. And you have to understand for the last 
five years since the first trial, I've been his sounding board and his punching bag for his frustrations. And I understand it. I mean, it's my job. And how do I tell a guy that, you know, trust the system? That's what we have to get you to redress against this company. Trust the system. It's all we can do. We don't do eye for an eye. We don't have corporal punishment here. And then he wins and then he loses. And then he comes to me and says, why should I do this again? And blah, blah, blah. And he hates this, whatever. And for five years, he's beaten me up, rightfully so. And I told him, you can say whatever you want this time. I'm not going to stop you. Right. But I want to talk to you about what this means. And by the time he got on the stand, he understood what was happening more. Yeah. And he was just calmer. He was more relaxed. He was more direct. He understood how to answer the questions in a way that makes sense. Because he has a way of chopping his sentences and, and rambling, but then stopping. So when I read the transcript, we had him over two days on a Friday to Monday, I think. And when I read the transcript from Friday, I'm like, Robbie, this needs to get fixed. Because the Court of Appeal sees this answer, and it's not the answer we need. Like, it doesn't answer anything. The jury knows what he said. You could see his, well, you know, you know how it is. It, it, it's just, it is, what it, it is, you know, he answers one of those. Right. right. And the transcript reads what I just said. And I was like, Robbie, you need to get him to answer the question. And Joey understood. And he just, he was a lot more receptive and amenable to what needed to be done. He connected with the jurors. They, they trusted him, especially as compared to opposing counsel. Unfortunately, he still to this day has never been permitted to talk to them by judge's order. Judge wouldn't let him talk to them in the hallway. Are you uh, talking about opposing counsel or talk to uh, who, who's, who's he not permitted to talk to? Joey's not permitted to talk to the jurors. Oh, ah, okay, okay. You All know, right. after yeah. the fact, like, and he just wanted to talk to him and, and just, Joey's a very, like, he's an emotional guy. He's a heartfelt yeah. guy. He's a, the guy's a hairdresser that spent his life basically being a consultant to his clients, touching yeah. them, physically touching his clients and have, he's the shoulder they cried on. And, you know, and I mean, it's not a sexist thing, but most of his clients are women getting cut in colors and they're coming and talking about their relationships and trusting Joey and he's this guy with this emotional side that can connect. He is a mother. He's very much a mama's boy. He's got a sister that he's a hero to that he helped raise. And he wanted to talk to these jurors and just like show his appreciation and understand and get them to know him because he couldn't talk to them for weeks. As you know, they can't talk to anymore. And to but this I'm day, sure, he still hasn't been able to. And I'm sure the jurors wanted to talk to him. I mean, usually after a case like this, I mean, jurors just want to come up and give the client a hug. So. That's right. And they wanted to, but yeah. the judge was, strict and i asked on the record before he dismissed him i'm like wait what if they stop him in the courtroom or in the parking right. lot outside this courthouse and he's like he's to walk away and to be honest i think that's beyond his jurisdiction to order any of that right especially after the jury's been discharged but there is an appeal going on and there's things that he's trying to protect the record on yeah so yeah. we had we followed his lead we haven't violated well, uh, well, Gabe, this has been just a great uh, conversation, and, and we really appreciate your time. I just want to make sure, is there anything else uh, about the uh, uh, Solier uh, versus Suzuki Motor Corp case that uh, you want to make sure our listeners have heard that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Well, I don't want this to end. I want to keep hey, going. Yeah, I know. No, it's been great. And 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 <laughs> believe me, I'm the same. I usually I just don't like taking up your time. But uh, but no, this has been uh, this has been fantastic. 
No, I, I would say ultimately, one, thank you so much for giving me the forum and, and sharing this, letting me share this with you and, and just being curious about it. Um, I have a subsequent case against Suzuki, same defect that's going to start August 7th, only that's a fatal injury. Uh, there's another case that's going on right now in Jacksonville against the same defense team I went against. Okay. It's on the third trial on the same defect. That's the Winkler case. Another case, I think, resolved recently. I think I'm, I'm going to go off record and I think I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's another, you know, there's just multiple. There's another case in L.A. with uh, Boris Trazon, an um, ACTS, Axe, uh, Abir Cohen, Trazon, and Salo. That, there's a huge case. There's a $30 million life care plan on that. Hmm. This isn't just a one-off case. This is right. a... This is a big problem that it's presented itself, declared itself to many different riders with many different injuries. Some are fatal, some are non-events. Some people got up, dusted off the injury and went on their way, like yeah. walked the bike home. Um, but it's it's a big problem that Suzuki has refused to deal with. And it's why I'm pushing so hard to sort of get the word out. And it's why this verdict mattered so much to me. And I told the jury, I think ultimately, if, if, if the majority of your listeners are lawyers, they're going to say, how do you get that kind of money? And it's the biggest, biggest verdict I ever got. And I'll tell you, you said at the beginning of this podcast, um, you know, they had, they got a, I got a verdict in 2018 that came to about $7 million. Okay. Big verdict. Yeah. With punitive damages, then too, big verdict, biggest one for me at that time as well. And they got a new trial, and the cost judgment on this trial is more than seven million dollars. Hmm. So they they're yeah. worse off. I don't think they're saying, "Thank God we got a new trial out of this," right? Right. And, and what was it like to retry a case? It absolutely sucked. You want closure? Yeah. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. I'm in a dark place in my profession right now because I've lost some faith in the justice system because of what I've dealt with in this case, that Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl, he gets the ring, he gets the speech, and he gets the bonus check, you know, within days. In our Super Bowl, this is my Super Bowl, every single play is under review, mm -hmm. yep. video review, and it may get overturned two years from now. You know, let's hope not. It's just, it, I don't know, this, it, it, it's a really tough, business to be in i do question a lot of the things that we do but we do the best we can i guess ultimately and people want to know how do you get verdicts like that one you got to believe in your case and if you truly believe in your case you just ask yeah you ask for it and you tell them why it should matter to them and why it matters to your client and why it you show them why it matters to everybody you don't tell them anything you show them through your through every action you portray in front of them and i tell jurors like everything i do i do intentionally i meant to do it hold me to that right if i put somebody on the stand or i ask them a question i meant to do that keep that in mind it doesn't always work out perfect it doesn't even always work out at all but i meant right. to do it it's intentional but so did they they meant to do it too. So when they put up that witness and they asked them those questions, they meant to do that too. Yeah. And when the jury starts seeing how much you care, ideally they start to care. Right? So yeah. 
it's there's no magic. I there's no magic in this business. I've watched so many people and read their transcripts and was like, where's the magic in this guy? He gets multiple $50 million verdicts. Where's the magic? And it's not going to be in the transcript. It's yeah. going to be in the show that he put on, the the emotion that they felt by listening to them, by being in his presence, by how much he cared. Yeah, I um, I completely agree with that about about passion and caring and and showing that to the jurors and uh, and not being afraid to show. I mean, you you obviously don't want to show the kind of emotion that that like you know um, where you're out of control or anything, but you definitely want to show emotion because it's these things are important and and um, and to show passion. And I I've said it multiple times. You know, if if it doesn't look like you care about the case then the jury certainly ain't going to care about the case. So um, you you better care. So And I'll tell you, like, I, I'm in a place now different from 2018. I'm much more calm and relaxed. In 2018, I was a much angrier guy. And I approached, so let me, can I tell this story? I don't, yeah, go, man. Yeah. Before this trial, somebody said, go watch the Alex Jones punitive damages argument. Okay. Because he got 900 and something million dollars, right? And they're like, go watch that. I think it'll, it'll help you. So I watched it and I was like, you know, I'm the, this lawyer is talking to me. Everything he's saying, I feel about Suzuki, about how he feels about Alex Jones and why, why to punish Alex Jones and put him out of our misery and do all this stuff. And he had all this passion, but he had all this anger. He had this anger about it. And I was like, man, I'm this guy's number one juror and I don't feel it. I don't care what he's selling. I don't feel his anger, but I know where his anger is coming from. Are you following what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Right. So I took that and I'm like, why, why do I get so angry at Suzuki? Why am I so angry at certain things? And I said, because I care. It's because I care. So I took that, that, that vision of that attorney and the experience I had. And I said, I'm not going to approach this with, with anger. I'm not even going to ask the jury to get angry. I'm going to ask them to care. Yeah. And I told them in punitive damages, I don't want your anger. I don't want your anger. I've been angry and it's got me nowhere. I want you to care and I want you to show them that they should care. Right. And that granted, this is a punitive damages argument, but it also goes to Joey. I want you to care about Joey. He yeah. didn't deserve this. Right. So I think the the one takeaway I would say is, we as lawyers, I think, need to stop thinking that jurors will get angry with us. They won't, but they will care. And care is lasting. Anger is fleeting. But when yeah. you do something out of care, you'll remember you did it for the right reasons forever. Right? Yeah. And I think those were the those were the inspirations Robbie and I and the Simon Group and Travis was our law in motion guy. We talked about it. We were like, let's approach this this way because it's genuine. It's true. And we're not going to get any influence over anybody that needs to make the right decision through anger. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And it was the right move. I mean, it turned out to be the right play. And it was right for me. Ultimately, yeah. I felt better about it. I love it. I, 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 in fact, uh, you were saying how we steal from each other. I'm going to steal that from you. I'm going to next time I'm, I'm going to tell them, don't get angry. Just show them that you care and that they should care. I love that. That and is that that, good. That's and, a great and, message. But feel it. Make the eye contact with them, right? Yeah. And, and it's like, it, I'm telling you, I and I meant it, man. I meant it. I did I wasn't just lip service, like lip service. Yeah. It was like, yeah. I don't want your anger. I don't want it. 
I want your care. Even yeah. if it's not proper language, like verbiage. <laughs> right, I don't right, want your right. anger, I want your care. And I know I sound like an idiot. But you know, what I'm <laughs> you know, that's right. That's right. Well, that that is great, man. Well, hey, listen, Gabe, I, I uh, we really appreciate your time. I, I want to remind all of our listeners that we've been talking about the Soyer versus Suzuki Motor Corp case uh, that uh, just tried earlier this year in Orange County and resulted in a hundred and sixty-one million dollar. Uh, verdict and our guest has been Gabe Houston with the Trial Lab and you can look up Gabe at thetriallab.com Gabe, thank you so much for your time. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thanks everyone for listening. It really means a lot to me, Steve, and the Great Trials podcast team and we have a few people we want to thank, right Steve? That's right. Definitely thank our sponsors, uh, digital law marketing, and you can go to digitallawmarketing.com. Who's next, Yvonne? And then we've got Legal Technology Services or LTS, and you can look them up at legaltechservice.com. And then, of course, we don't want to forget Raz and podonthego.com. Yes. And uh, tell, tell Raz we sent you, but um, he is our trusty producer and does great work. So uh, feel free to reach out to him if you need help with your podcast. Hey, we should also thank our law partners because uh, we're uh, our firm has been very supportive. Uh, and that's Harris Lowry Mann. And if you want to look us up, it's at hlmlawfirm.com. And then, of course, we always want you to rate and review us and give a great review if you feel that that's uh, if that's how you feel. Um, and you can go on and do that at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening, guys.